This past Lent, we did uh, Flourishing in Exile was the name of the series, and I presented this graphic. I think, can you see the little letters in the back? I don't know if you can or not. See the big ones. Um, But the little letters I really want to highlight here, right in the middle. Now, this graphic is really kind of an image that captures our common life together, especially formation as we see it here at Advent. And right in the middle, in, in small print, if you can see it in the back row, it says, Receiving and reorienting everything around life in Christ. And it's really at the center of this image because it is the heartbeat of what we do here. That is the thing that pumps oxygen and life to our body here at Advent. Receiving and reorienting everything around life in Christ. How? Well, through word, spirit, and sacrament. And as we look out from there, we have a reshaped sense of intimacy with the Father, a reshaped sense of our identity, of our belonging, and our purpose. But I want to focus in on these three words, life in Christ. We're going to explore these words in our series over the coming weeks, um, up until Advent. What does it mean that, according to Colossians 3, our lives are hid with Christ in God? Union with Christ is the series, and you can go to the union graphic. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows every single blessing of the spiritual life in Christ. Everyone, forgiveness of sin, adoption as children, empowerment of the Spirit, all these flow from our union with Christ. So just like, like lakes and oceans and mountain streams are all kind of unique, but they're all water, so does every single unique beauty of the Christian life share this single source, union with Christ. So I'm not sure if there's any teaching from the Bible that is simultaneously more important and more underappreciated as union with Christ. It is the Samwise Gamgee of the Bible, um, you know, the real hero of the story. It's the, um, it's the, for the Bulls dynasty in the 1990s, it's the Scotty Pippen of salvation doctrine. So underappreciated, so, so under-discussed, but, but so valuable. So for those of you who are already Christians, let me just say this. Apprehending union with Christ, for the first time, deeply apprehending it, will revolutionize, I believe, your spiritual life. It might be that for your heart and for your soul, you know, it's like the grainy, confused images of antenna television are suddenly going to be coming through in 4K. It might just bring clarity and high definition to everything in your heart and soul about the Christian life. Others of you have probably already apprehended union with Christ, but I hope this series will be very profoundly nourishing and encouraging for you as we explore these truths. Now, for any of you who might not be Christians yet, you might still consider yourself seeking, more curious about Christ than already Christian. I hope that you will hear in this series an invitation. An invitation to see the Christian life, which is not fundamentally a set of rules or a set of ideas or a set of moral stances, but more fundamentally is an intimate, relational encounter with the living God through His Spirit in Christ. So next week, we're going to get more into what union with Christ actually is. This week, I'm going to do something a little experimental. I'm going to front load the application to try to make us all interested, and um, we'll see how it works. I don't know if it'll work or not. But I want to draw out a few themes, a few ways that union with Christ addresses what I'm calling the several of the most deadly spiritual snake bites of our day. How does union with Christ uh, address, in particular, three things? The gap, the gap between our head and our heart, 
Second, moral therapeutic deism, which is a fancy way of saying a kind of common approach to, to God in our day, especially among youth, and I'll explain it a little bit more. And last, political idolatry. So I want to show how union with Christ addresses these three spiritual snake bites we need to be watching out for. Well, let me first mention a few things by way of introduction to the series. First, this sermon, and maybe some of them are going to feel a little different. I'm not preaching exegetically through a specific text. text. I'm going to be drawing on several. Um, and second, this is really based on two books, Union with Christ by Rankin-Wilborn, Union with Christ by Rankin-Wilborn, and Union with Christ by J. Todd Billings. So I am really curating more than I am creating and referring to these guys a lot. Rather than tell you every time, I just want you to know I'm drawing on them a lot. Okay, so let's get a working definition of union with Christ. Union with Christ, and this is if, for you note-takers, note this is to write down. Union with Christ is the reality those who place their faith in Christ experience as the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ and Christ to us so that whatever is true of him becomes true of us. Union with Christ is the reality those who place their faith in Christ experience as the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ and Christ to us, and here are the key words, so that whatever is true of him becomes true of us. So here we go. Union with Christ is, first of all, the antidote to the spiritual snake bite we are calling the gap. Mind the gap. Anyone been to the, the underground in London? Mind the gap. So Wilborn's book begins with this question. If Christianity is true in its promise of new life, then why don't I feel more new? He illustrates this with an example from the 1983 movie Tender Mercies. Anyone? Yes, getting some nods. Robert Duvall plays a uh, washed-up musician named Mac, and he and his young friend Sonny decide they're going to get baptized together. So they're driving home from church after the baptism, and Sonny comments to Mac. He says, well, we've done it, Mac. We're baptized. Everybody said I was going to feel like a changed person, and I guess I do feel a little different, but I don't feel a whole lot different. Do you, Mac? And Mac replies, not yet. To which Sonny says, you don't look any different. And sitting up to inspect himself in the rearview mirror, Matt goes on, Sonny goes on, do you think I look any different? And Mac again replies, not yet. I wonder if you can relate, not necessarily to this specific story, but to the sentiment. Jesus promised that whoever believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Do you feel like a river of God's love and life is just constantly flowing out of you? A river? Sometimes I feel like maybe a steady drip, you know, at best. This is the gap. It's the gap between the promises of God, these great promises of God, and what many of us believe to be true, right? We're forgiven, we're loved, we're secure in Christ, rivers of living water. And what we sometimes experience is true. We're discouraged. We are insecure. We are afraid. We are lonely. We are stuck in destructive patterns and behaviors. A drip at best. Maybe we feel like Bill. Bill is a driven, wizened executive in Wilborn's church. And after one sermon, he, he's asked, Wilborn asked Bill, Bill, what did you think about the sermon? And Bill's response to Rankin-Wilborn was, cynical as hell. And he flashed an exhausted smile. He's heard all the sermons, you know, he knows all the, the hymns. He, he knows all the prayers. He's got the prayer book basically memorized. But there's a gap between what he knows and believes 
and what he experiences in his inner life. That's the gap. Others are like Kristen. They're not cynical, but they're indifferent at best. Um, Kristen wonders how belief in someone who lived 2,000 years ago, how that actually is supposed to affect her life today. That's the gap. Others are simply out of ideas, you know, to find joy and satisfaction in life. They've tried new cities, they've taken new jobs, they've, they've taken on new hobbies, new relationships, new counselors, new diets, but no matter what, eventually a spiritual or existential stagnation begins to set in. That's the gap. And the not-so-secret way of closing the gap is referenced over 200 times in the New Testament, over and over and over again. It saturates the writings of the Bible, and it saturates the writings of the early Christians and the Reformers. Union with Christ. Now, in many cases, the reason that there's a gap, the gap I've just named, in many cases, the reason it exists is because our beliefs and our experiences is that Well, our experience, we've come to separate the person and the work of Christ, if I could put it most broadly. We've come to separate them. We've become more interested in the gifts that Christ gives us as a result of his works than abiding in Christ the person, if that makes sense. Because it's quite easy to desire the forgiveness that Christ offers more than the friendship that Christ offers. Sometimes we want his benefits, but not him. At least that's how we live. We have to remember, forgiveness of sins does not come to us like a gift card from Jesus that arrives on our doorstep. To Jordan, from Jesus. Well, since I, you know, a little note. Since I died on the cross to pay for your sins, please use this gift card to cover the selfish disaster that was last Tuesday evening. Let me know if you need any more. Take care, Jesus. And I respond, dear Jesus, please send more forgiveness as soon as possible. Sincerely, Jordan. Ephesians 1.7 does not say, from him we receive forgiveness of sins. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Is it from him? Yes. But it only comes to us in the form of Christ himself. Not gift cards from Christ, if that makes sense. In Jesus' own words in John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him He or she it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. See, the branches do not get the benefits of the vine unless they are united to the vine. Or finally, in John Calvin's words, understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, all that he has suffered and done for our salvation remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, Christ had to dwell within us. So if we think of Jesus as some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who drops off gifts on our doorstep, we will be like little children who delight in these gifts for a time, and then we find ourselves, as little children do after receiving a gift, restless for another one, jealous, needing more, disenchanted. A gift is, after all, simply a sign of the love that someone has for another person. It is not the love itself. What we desire is what Jesus desires for us, to give us love himself. So listen, what I'm trying to say in this first point is we need to mind the gaps. Okay, we mind the gaps between our head and our hearts. Pay attention to the cynicism that comes up. Okay, pay attention to the indifference you might feel. Pay attention to even the animosity sometimes you might feel. Even in church when you're hearing Scripture, pay attention to the spiritual stagnation that sets in. 
Okay, mind those gaps. Be aware of them. Give them, pray through them with God. But then remember that in response, what you need to do is not to um, be better or pray differently or, um, well, maybe, but that's secondary. What you need is not more divine gift cards dropped off on your doorstep from God. You need the vine. You need Christ himself. You need to return to your first love of abiding in Christ. As you pray your way through these gaps, perhaps you'll realize that at the bottom of your deepest desires is the gift giver himself. Because there is Christ waiting for you, indwelling you by his spirit, waiting for you to come and tend to him and abide with him. And as you go there with him, maybe your desire for him will deepen and awaken, as Paul's did in Philippians 3, who writes what we read this morning, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as a loss because of Christ. I regard everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So that's the first reason I hope you'll attend to these truths. Union with, union with Christ is the gap closer. Okay, it's the gap closer between our head and our hearts. And as we tend to this gap, we recognize there's this blessed union in us. Our lives are hid with Christ and God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are his. He is your life. Second, union with Christ is the antidote to the spiritual snake bite, often called moral therapeutic deism. Um, if you could bring up this slide, commonly known as American theology. Okay, here are the basic points of moral therapeutic deism. This term comes from Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith, did an extensive study on American youth, and here's what he found most youth in America believed a little over a decade ago. A God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, decent start. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay? The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. Now, in a follow-up to his original research, Smith studies emerging adults, a little older, 18 to 23-year-olds. This was a belief mostly um, capturing the belief of teens. But in emerging adults, 18 to 23-year-olds, he finds that the, the moral therapeutic, and it's called moral therapeutic deism, I think, for obvious reasons. It's a picture of a god who's deistic, removed, kind of like a watchmaker, sets up a watch and then stands back, not very involved. He's mostly interested in just kind of patting us on the back at the end of the day and affirming our choices. And, you know, should be a generally nice person. Well, these beliefs begin to erode as, as teenagers um, age into the emerging adult stage. And Smith writes this in a follow-up study to his original one. Emerging adults are determined to be free, but they do not know what is worth doing with their freedom. They work very hard to stand on their own two feet, but they don't really know where they ought to go and why once they are standing. They lack larger visions of what is true and real and good. Many know that there must be something more and they want it. Many are uncomfortable with their inability to make truth statements and moral claims without killing them with the death of a thousand qualifications. But they don't know what to do about that, given the crisis of truth and values that has destabilized their culture. And so they simply carry on as best as they can, as sovereign, autonomous, empowered individuals who lack a reliable basis for any particular conviction 
or direction by which to guide their lives. So in summary, Smith's research is actually finding that emerging adults have a deep desire for God to be more than a divine butler, a convenient and distant deity. But this desire is at odds with this deeply grained cultural commitment to treat faith as, at best, a necklace that one decides to wear as part of a self-made identity. At best, it's an accessory of the self-made man or woman. Okay, so what does union with Christ have to say about this? Union with Christ at once challenges this mindset while simultaneously offers what it's, I think, what emerging adults really deeply want most, a thick, a robust, pregnant reality, one of truth and goodness and beauty on which to ground your life. You know, when Romans 13 calls us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not calling us to um, accessorize with Jesus across around our neck. It's calling us to put on a whole new wardrobe. Now, the tension many young people feel is a bit like the tension that the younger brother felt in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son yearned for what he thought was freedom. But as he pursued this freedom, he found himself so hungry he was eating pig slop, thinking to himself, my father treats his slaves better than this. So slunking home, slunking, slunking a word? Slinking? I don't know. Stoop shoulders, he comes home. Broken by the promise of freedom that turned out to be pig slop, the prodigal son rehearses what he's going to say to his father. And you know the story. He says he's going to say to his father, make me like one of your slaves. And I wonder if this is the fear. I know it is the fear that many people have maybe about coming to Christ for the first time. Is this going to make me kind of like a dutiful slave? Will union with Christ mean kind of slavery for me? But as the broken son's stooping shoulders crest this horizon beyond his father's front porch, the old man, his father, just, he's overcome with delight. And he abandons etiquette, and he pulls up his robe, and he runs to his broken son. And my favorite detail of the account is how the son begins his rehearsed apology. Remember, make me like one of your slaves? He begins, he says to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, but his father cuts him off. The father interrupts him. He can't get the words out, make me like one of your slaves. His father interrupts him and he says, quick, bring me the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, put a a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. God is not a distant deity or a half-hearted, removed therapist. He is a father who longs to adopt us, who longs to run to us. And so we ask the question in the story, did the prodigal son lose or gain his freedom in coming home? Union with Christ teaches us that the Christian faith is at once more demanding and more beautiful than we could have imagined. God our Father runs to us in Christ and he wants to adopt us as his own children and he wants to fill us with his spirit, uniting our life to his. And that's too good to be true. But with that, we come into his household. And as we're adopted, we enter into this whole new holistic way of life. One that is not an accessory around our necks. One that comes with a whole new wardrobe. So come to Christ and you'll be asked to give up much. Maybe everything. But in doing so, you will gain Christ. You'll be found in him. And you will be launched into a life of intimacy and belonging, and purpose, and eternal blessedness. 
So union with Christ is the gap closer. It challenges the pervasive sense of American theology that many, especially of our youth, live with. The invitation is at once more challenging and more beautiful. And lastly, union with Christ is the antidote to the spiritual snakebite of political idolatry. Um, it's hard to see here, but this is an image of the golden calf. This is, a, I think, a 17th century painting. It's in the museum in London. Um, political idolatry. Now, it's no secret in our day that we are seeing the church of Christ increasingly divided along political fault lines. And to oversimplify that divide, just for the sake of time, um, the ecclesial left, the, the liberal progressive church, tends to identify the gospel with ethical and social action, especially justice. Religion is fundamentally a horizontal affair from human being to human being, neighbor to neighbor. On the other hand, the ecclesial right, the conservative evangelical church, tends to emphasize the vertical dimension of the gospel, whether a person is right with God. But perhaps they leave unclear, at best, the role of the horizontal dimension, loving the poor and the orphan and the immigrant and the widow. And then, of course, there are pressing divisions of our national discourse, very deep divisions. What to do with Trump? What to do with Biden? What to do with masks and vaccines and immigration? And we could go on and on and on. Only a very robust and, I think, fiercely fought for and lived theology of union with Christ can bring together what modernity has separated. So let's take justice as an example. Are we to be social justice warriors? You know, the focus is on introducing people to one another and love and ethical and and social action? Or are we to be, you know, what would happen to you if you died today? You know, would you, are, we to, are we to focus on the horizontal or on the vertical? Union with Christ gives us a theology that insists on both. Because by the Spirit of Christ indwelling us, we are not only justified, right? We are also sanctified. In John Calvin's conception, in union with Christ, we are given a double grace. Forgiveness of sins, justification, and new life, sanctification. Justification makes us right with God. Sanctification is the gift from God which animates love for neighbor. Now, one of these gifts does not come without the other. Why? Because of what we just said. Because we cannot any more separate these gifts from one another than we can tear Christ in two. Remember, because he doesn't give us divine gift cards. Here's justification. Here's sanctification. No, he gives us himself. And as we're indwelt by Christ, we are justified with him, and our loves are animated towards our neighbor. So it's a, it's a, it's a false choice that we're given. It's both, always both. So in union with Christ gives us this ability to reconcile theology, but more than that, I also think it gives us a, a rebuke of our idolatries. Left, right, mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine. Now, please don't hear me say I don't have opinions about these things or I don't think you should. I do. Um, as with justice, I think these things are important. I have opinions, even strong ones on some of them, and I'd be happy to share them with you over coffee um, or, or after this, you know, if you just want to talk about it. Still, I will go to my grave begging you and begging the church to stop making important things ultimate things. For a church to build her entire identity on being anti-mask, for example, it grieves me deeply because it's idolatry. 
It is to take a specific response to a complex social issue. It is to make that more important than the blood of Christ for unity. Listen to Paul's words, if you could bring up this text, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And I kind of want to scream them, but then I remember that actually what they're doing is addressing me too. That my anti-mask brothers and sisters and pastors who lead anti-mask churches, they are my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and I'm called to love them. But, li- but still, I want to I offer you all and myself and the church more generally this warning from Paul. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as sensible people. Ju- I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now listen, there are all kinds of important conversations to be had. There are all kinds of allegiances which we can form. But I beg you, Church of the Advent, and I beg you, O my soul, you know, don't let any of them ever become more important to you than participation in the body and blood of Christ. You are in Christ. So as I conclude, and as we come to the table together, this is my invitation to you over the next six weeks of this series. Seek Christ above all things. Notice the gaps that are emerging in you and seek Christ. Ask yourself whether you want a convenient God or Abba, Father. You know? And when it comes to unity and union with the church, I beg you and plead with you to reassert and fiercely preach to yourself your fundamental identity as in Christ. And don't let anything become more important to you than that. As you have these important conversations, remember they're not ultimate. Okay, so as we come to the table, let us experience this gift of being invited into Christ's life, his very life, his very body, his very blood, this one cup, this one body by which we are united to his body all over the world and united to one another. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Father, we pray that you would continue to invite us more deeply into this mystery, that uh, over the coming weeks you would teach us what it means to be in Christ, what it means for our relationships and our vocations and the way we parent and the way we work and the way we live and worship um, and think about your church. Uh, We thank you for your gift of incredible grace to us, that you would fill us with yourself and make us your children. I pray you deepen this sense of identity for each one of us, that we may be found in Christ. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.